and open your word so that it will be um, obviously meaningful to us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right, uh, Romans chapter 8 now. Uh, we have spent two weeks in two verses. I hope we can start going a little faster. Uh, but um, we're, we're right at the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So if, so if I feel condemned, it's either my training or it is satanic. It is not the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I find only one place. Maybe I've missed them. Maybe I, I have been blinded so long to Scripture. In my, even, in my, in, even in my Christian life, I've been so blinded, reading in light of my presuppositions, that I, I now know um, that I have, to, I have to qualify anything that I say like this but I know of no other passage in Scripture that says God convicts anybody of sin except John 16, 8, and 9. And there it is the world because they do not believe in Jesus. Uh, the conclusion I draw from this is that God does not convict us. And as we shall see in Romans 8, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw us near, not to make us feel condemned or unqualified, unworthy. Um, so... Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For, as, as Paul says, for the, uh, the uh, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The effect of that is, or actually the reason for that, that Paul can say these things are, uh, is in verses 2 and 3, is verses 3 and 4. Do you start verse uh, 3 with 4? Is that what you have? 4. Uh, and the, the two verses are a single statement. They're a little bit hard to, f- hard to pin down as to the grammar. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it slightly in order to get the point. God has solved the problem of what was impossible for the law to do. It was impossible for the law to give us righteousness. Paul has said that since chapter 3. Uh, we know that, um, I don't know what I know now, <laughs> Romans three nineteen. We know that uh, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world held guilty before God because by the law no flesh shall be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law couldn't do anything. There is no provision in the law to give righteousness to people. That's hard for us, because for one thing, those of us who are Americans, being an American means you do good, doesn't it? You're supposed to be good. Nobody owes you anything. Did anybody ever tell you this? Whatever you get out of life, you're going to have to earn it. Um, So we bring that into our Christian lives. We can't understand why we struggle. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
4, what was impossible for the law in that it was weak through the flesh. We spent all that time in Romans 7 explaining that idea. The, the law can't give us righteousness because all, all that happens is my indwelling sin uses the law to produce acts of sin. So the more I try to rely on the law, the more sinful I'm going to actually be. That's awfully frustrating. Now I have to, I have to stop though. If the law couldn't give righteousness, why were there righteous people in the Old Testament? Because the Holy Spirit does things that the law doesn't promise. <laughs> Are you with me? God doesn't have to limit himself to what the law says. I, let me explain what I mean by that. The law requires but cannot enable obedience. Yes? But the Holy Spirit can come into people's lives and give them <laughs> a right relationship with God that's expressed in loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength and loving their, brother, their neighbor as themselves. Would that be true in your mind? Why do we have people like folks we know about? Jonathan. Think about Saul's son Jonathan alone. Here is a man who, whose father <laughs> didn't look like good spiritual ground. Yes, to come from? Right? And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, look, the Philistines are over there. Let's go up and we'll show ourselves to the Philistines. And uh, if they say one thing, we'll know that God is not going to fight for us. But if they say another thing, by the way, what does he, what does he think about God? He thinks God can actually instruct unbelievers on what to say, yes, to indicate his will. Isn't that pretty remarkable? If they say another, then we'll go up in the confidence that God has given them into our hands. For God is not weak to save by only, uh, only many or only by few. He can save in any way he wishes. And they go up. And the, the armor bearer, by the way, is of the same spiritual ilk that Jonathan is. I go with you. Go, I'm going with you. Let's do it. And they go up, and sure enough, the Philistines respond appropriately, and Jonathan routes the garrison, which led to a rout of the Philistine army. And Saul's still hiding in a cave. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the the one thing that I find that differs in the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament, the, the his ministry in the church, is the baptizing work in the Spirit. Um, turn to First Corinthians uh, twelve. Uh, <clears throat> again, it's the only passage I know that gives us any indication of what the baptizing work of the Spirit is. First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen, and I'm gonna. Uh, well, I'll, we'll just deal with it and then go back. Uh, for indeed, in one spirit have we all been baptized into one body. Who is the we all? In verse thirteen, now mind you, you're reading a book Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Who is the we all? Pardon. Is Paul talking to them about every last possible Christian? Or is he talking about himself and them? 
Now, by extension, he's talking about all Christians. Are you with me? But in the immediate context, he's talking about the Corinthian believers who are divisive, and they have a man living with his father's wife, and they're boasting about it, and they're going to court against one another, and they can't figure out about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and they're, they're, some of them are fellowshipping in idle temples, Yes? And in, there are some who are getting drunk at the Lord's table. There are people who are using spiritual gifts for their own self-aggrandizement. In one spirit have we all been baptized into one spirit. So spirit baptism is not a second blessing in which you get special unusual power for living the Christian life. Baptism in the spirit is, again, what he says. Look in verse 13. In one spirit have we been all been baptized into one body. The baptizing work of the spirit, as, Paul, as Peter says in Acts chapter 11, basically began on the day of Pentecost. So um, he said, as I was speaking to the, to the people at Cornelius' house, in Acts 11 he says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, uh, um, you shall receive power after not many days, if you recall this. So the, the ministry of the Spirit that distinguishes the church is the baptizing in the Spirit. But the Spirit enabled Old Testament believers to be and do what they did. The, ba- the, 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 the Holy Spirit gave new birth in the Old Testament. Um, um, we talked about this months ago. So you can hardly even remember what we did two weeks ago, so how can I hope that you would remember this? But turn to John 3. Let me show you what the Holy Spirit's ministry is in new birth. Well, it's giving new birth, yes. But how do you recognize new birth? First, uh, John chapter 3, um, um, verse 3. Jesus responded and said to him, In absolute truth I tell you, Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what does it mean to see the kingdom of God? I read that as if it is synonymous for years. I read it as if it's synonymous with his subsequent saying in the same chapter, enter the kingdom of God. But seeing and entering need not be the same thing. You would know this, yes? We saw, the first time I we went to the Rocky Mountains, we saw the mountains long before we entered them. If you've ever driven out west, you know what I'm talking about. Um, So what does it mean to see the kingdom? Well, turn to Hebrews 11. You've you've opened up a very crucial issue, brother. (laughs) So Hebrews 11 um, and verse, uh, it's it's one of the last verses about Moses. Um, It's in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, Hebrews 11, 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as... Who is... How can you see one who is invisible? You live as if invisible realities are as real as as any other reality is. Does this make sense to you? Right? 
Moses saw the kingdom. Uh, I, it just occurs to me that the same idea is a little bit earlier in the chapter. Uh, let's see. Verses, uh, verse 13. Uh, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but seeing them afar off, and greeting them and confessing that they are strangers and aliens upon the earth. Are you with me here? Did anybody in the Old Testament live that way? Well, everybody in Hebrews 11 lived that way. Yes? Well, how did they do that? The ministry of the Spirit that enables people to live in light of unseen reality is the ministry of the new birth, among other things. Are you with me? Yes? So the Holy Spirit has been doing a lot of ministries. The one that's distinctive of our time, as far as I can tell, is um, baptism in the Spirit. No, it's, it's, uh, it's the, I didn't get to it. I'm sorry, I didn't say enough about that. It's what joins us vitally to the body of Christ. Uh, he is forming the body of Christ uh, by the baptizing ministry. Indwelling is another probably distinctive ministry that it's permanent now, but was something that could be removed in the Old Testament. I saw, I thought, another hand maybe. I guess not. Let's go back to Romans 8 then. So the law makes no promise. It makes no provision. It has no hope that it can offer of enablement for for doing the righteousness it requires. The good news is that God may do more than what he says he will do in the law. Are you with me here? So anyone that we see who is righteous in the Old Testament is not righteous because he kept the law. If he kept the law at all, it was because he was already righteous. Are you with me here? Yes, no? All right. Does that go along with obedience Yeah. So, verse 3 continues, the law is weak, but God has, has done what the law could not do. So we read in the middle of verse 3, God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and perhaps you have, and for sin. All right? There, there is another possible reading. The expression that's translated for sin is, a, is an expression that's used in the Old Testament consistently for translating sin offering. Um, so we might even read this as um, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering has condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous decree of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The crucial point uh, in, this, uh, in these two verses now becomes, what does it mean to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? We talked about this last week, because if you have the King James, that same clause is present at the end of verse 1. And there, generally speaking, um, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our normal reading of flesh means there, then, that if you're walking according to the flesh, you're being disobedient. So there couldn't, couldn't be the possibility that verse 1 would be true of such people. Yes? 
if, if flesh means living as sinfully as we all live, but if flesh means something different, if flesh is not solely my propensity to sin, but also my, my desire for law righteousness, and when I feed that desire for law righteousness, as we argued in chapter 7, when I feed my flesh law, it loves it. It's the exact food that my desire for law righteousness wants. When I eat that food, it produces acts of sin because that's what indwelling sin does. Go back and read Romans 7 and see if this is not the case. Paul finds that the more he feeds on the law, the more sin is produced in his life. And the key verse in this is, is, is Romans 7, 7, and 8, that we have belabored now for how long? You're getting weary of it. Um, is the law sin? Of course not. For I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said you, you shall not covet. But I ask again, as we have asked before, what does it mean to know covetousness? Well, the rest of the verse makes it clear. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetousness, for without the law, sin is dead. Indwelling sin can't act on its own when there's no law. So if I'm living by faith, um, then I'm not living by law. If I'm living by faith, I'm living by the Spirit. Uh, I'm, I'm having a long-term um, hope. This was not even a biblical hope. Biblical hope is placed in a good object, and so it's always satisfied. Okay, This was a, this was a pipe dream. I wrote uh, 27 years ago. I wrote a manuscript on Romans, and it's laying dormant for all these years it's in it's in process of being edited now and looks like it'll be out in the fall i'm just i, I can't believe that this thing is going to get out but uh, looks like it's going to get out um when when i first uh showed it to a friend who's now my editor <laughs> uh he asked me why does paul wait turn back to romans 7 just a minute why does paul bring up spirit in the first six verses of chapter 7. So, um, uh, verse, uh, where is spirit there? Um, six, yeah. Um, yeah, there it is. But now we have been set free from the law, having died to that by which we were been held, so that we serve not in the, I'm sorry, we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the obsolescence of the letter. Why does he bring up spirit there? And I said to him then, as I say to you now, living by the spirit, just as baptism in the spirit is not a new stage of spirituality that Christians can achieve, it is an essential element for all Christians. You can't be a child of God if you're not in the body of Christ. Would, would, you, would you grant that? So if I'm in the body of Christ, I'm baptized in the spirit. By the same token, what does it mean to live by the Spirit? I was listening to lectures by my favorite professor this week on these kinds of issues, and he got it wrong. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say. But folks, he himself said, 
by the time, by, by my, my prayer for you men is that by the time you reach my age, you will know more than I. His prayer is answered. <laughs> but he said, lest you, lest you go arrogant in your, in your knowledge and, and puffed up, by then I will be in heaven and I will know more than you. And he is in heaven today and knows more than I. <laughs> but but the, the, uh, the point I'm getting at is um, what, what an older generation, what the, the foundation that an older generation laid gives us the chance to stand on it and reach higher. Are you with me? To build on it. So he built a foundation I could stand on. And then go back to the text. Same text he was studying and see things maybe that he didn't see. So as I come here, I find here this walking by the Spirit. What does it mean? It means to live by grace. It means to live by faith. It does not mean that you have a special uh, 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 tie to God that other carnal Christians don't have. A carnal Christian is a person who has reached a stage of growth and has quit growing if the likeness of God is our goal I'll never stop growing yes so by the time I reach my favorite professor's stage I know more more, I I can't talk I will know more than I know now (laughs) yes and I'll be learning throughout all eternity yes brother Indwelling sin. Indwelling yeah. Sin. All right. Now, in other words, again, it's sin thing confused. Yeah. If, if we're, everyone in this room is in constant sin, that's why we're dying, right? No, not necessarily. Well, isn't the wages of sin death? Yeah, but Jesus died and he wasn't in constant sin. Well, yeah, but he wasn't born with a sin nature. That, that's true, but he still he still died. Because he was a sin bearer, if I have ever committed a sin, even if it's only one, and never again, I still must die. So it doesn't have to mean that I'm in constant sin. Indwelling sin is a capacity to, to, that, that all of us have spiritually. It's an unspiritual, spiritual capacity to sin against our own will, as Paul develops it in the rest of the, of the chapter 7. Okay, but the, the condemnation verse... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So why is my hair turning gray? <laughs> well, I'll let you answer the question. You're going someplace with. Well, I mean, why are, why are we sitting? Yeah. Here if we can't run as fast as we could. We're, we're physically dying. Yeah, we are. And isn't it isn't, isn't death the fact that we're dying and a, a consequence that we have not escaped the consequence? Yes. Of yes. Okay, so. If, if we're talking about the consequences of sin, I'm going to have that until the day I get a new body, right? That's true. All right. But if during the time I'm living and I'm under the consequence of sin, uh-huh. are you talking, if you get confused for me from the standpoint, is sin an act or is sin a condition? It's a little of both. Well, what's Paul talking about when he says there's no condemnation? Condemnation yeah. from the condition? So. But also from the from the from the uh, consequences of sin. Okay, so let, let me let me distinguish two categories of ideas. One is 
we can talk about consequences of disobedience for your children, yes? We can talk about consequences of crime for a criminal. Yes? The word consequence itself has become too ambivalent in this part of the conversation. So what I want to do is, is clarify. We are free from the penalty, but not from the chastening that comes for our sin. Now, what kind of father chastens his children? A loving father. That's the act of love, not, a, not an act of, of wrath. I'm reading through a commentary on Leviticus, getting ready for a class this fall. And the guy, uh, let's see, where was, he ta- where was he writing? He was probably in Leviticus 4. He was talking about the uh, sin offering. And um, in it, he said, there is, there is no explicit reference to wrath in this passage. And then he said, the, 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 um, the sacrifice dies in our place, dies the death we ought to die. You, know, you can't have it both ways. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Do you follow this? All right. I see some heads going like that, so that's, that's fine. If, if I bring, I, I had a similar con, a conversation with a student several years ago who believed there are two different kinds of sin. There's sin that's intentional that you can lose your salvation because you commit it. Then there are sins that are mistakes. But Hebrews, I'm sorry, Leviticus 4 is about sacrifice for sins that, are, that he would categorize as mistakes. But the fact that the animal that's offered on the altar must die indicates that the penalty for that mistake is death. This guy makes that very point. Well, folks, once you're start ta- starting to talk about penalty and, and uh, death for sin, you're talking about wrath. Yes? Now, you've heard it said, perhaps, grandchildren are God's reward to you for not killing your own children. <laughs> and as we mentioned last week, I heard a lady say recently, I've never thought about, in all the X number of years we've been married, I've never thought about divorce. Murder, I've thought about, but never divorce. God brings wrath against those who are not in Christ. For us, when we sin, even when we don't sin, and we talked about this last week, discipline is, is God's chastening love for us. Folks, do you know how? Do you remember getting spanked as a child? As a child, do you know how to, how to limit the effects of being spanked? No? You're going to get spanked. So how can you limit the effect? Move in close. Mother always held me out like this. <laughs> if you can move in close... You, you slow down the speed of the arc as it's coming around. <laughs> and, and, and here's the amazing thing with God, Glenn. That's quite an insight. You must have had a lot of experience. I had a lot of experience. <laughs> I, brother, I learned, I learned that late. I didn't learn it early. <laughs> so, but, but the point is, God, God holds us in close when he's chastening us. I, I was thinking this morning in light of 
Mrs. Spurgeon's death this morning. I, I went back through some of the loss of my own mother uh, six years ago, and, and all of you have had some experience like this. And I've, I've just been kind of very emotional all morning as a result of that. It, it, interestingly, as she was dying, I, the Lord woke me up. And I was thinking about the, the dread effects of age and death. And uh, then I got um, an hour or so later the text from Andrew about his mother's death. And um, we, we interchanged several messages. But it's just been really bearing on my soul. But folks, listen. Death for the child of God is not wrath. It's relief it's release from this aging body. It's release from the weaknesses that we have, not only from age, but spiritually as well. It's release, is it not? Um, um, as I heard someone years ago, an older person say, I'm getting more and more invested in heaven as my friends and family go ahead of me. Um, i got to stop this or I'm going to be... Back blubbering again, but um, the the large point is that in the in the case where God is disciplining us for sin, Scripture doesn't say that He does that, but I'm sure He does. He disciplines us. Yes, we looked at this in, in Hebrews twelve four to eleven last week. When He disciplines us, He pulls us in close. Whom the listen to the verse? It's quoted in Hebrews four Hebrews twelve. Um, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Loves, chastens, scourges, receives. God's loving acceptance surrounds all of his discipline of us. And folks, what's important, critically important in this whole discussion, in Hebrews chapter 5, how, did you, how, how are we going to learn obedience according to Hebrews 12? 4 to 11. Through the discipline of God? Yeah? How did Jesus learn obedience? Through suffering. Who planned those sufferings for Jesus? God did. Then God disciplined his, all his sons. Not just disobedient ones. Obedient ones. So the consequences of sin are different for the, for the two classes of people. Outside of Christ, it's wrath. In Christ, it's the love of God that is preparing us for everlasting life. Yes? Very similar to the statement you made. I heard a man once say he reached the point in aging in his life that he wanted to be a dog on him. He realized he knew more people now in heaven than he knew that mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was the point of that kind of statement. So, back to Romans 8. Um, what does it mean to walk according to the flesh? What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? In the context, walking in the Spirit does not mean living a better standard of Christian life than anybody else. It means living by faith, which is what every Christian is called to do. It's the only way you can be a Christian, to be a believer, to be one who trusts God. You don't trust God one day and never again for the rest of your life, then you never trusted God. If you trust God, you trust God. You may have to learn how to do it. 
I, didn't, I don't always understand how to trust God. I don't know enough about God. When my, when my um, parents divorced back in the late 60s, uh, people would come to my mother, who was a godly woman, and they'd say, Juanita, just trust God. She said, I don't know how. The God they told me about would never allow this thing to happen in my life. But the God who actually exists did. I don't know how to trust him. But she didn't give up on trusting. She just had to learn how. Does this communicate at all to you? When Abraham goes to, to Canaan, God says, blessing, I will bless you. You and I are equipped to understand blessing from chapters 1 to 11. But Abraham hadn't read chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis. <coughs> yes or no? Then he doesn't know what if we've read the passage properly, we would know blessing means that God is, is intending to, to provide everything that's necessary for life and for service. Abraham doesn't necessarily know that. So when, a, when, a, when a, um, a famine comes in the land of Canaan, he has a hard decision to make. The, the decision of faith would be stay in the land and let God provide. But Abraham is immature in his faith, as most of us are. And I put myself in that class. Some of you are far more mature in faith than I am. Way more mature than I am. So I'm just learning how to trust God. I've walked with God 60 years. And I'm still learning. I'm so immature in my faith. I've lived by fear most, most of my life. And I'm sick of it. But I'm afraid to go on. That's immaturity in faith. And that will lead to faithless actions coming from a faithful heart. <coughs> but it's immature. I don't know how to trust. Are, am I making sense to you at all? So when I act faithlessly, I will sin. And God sometimes will do what he did with Abraham, bring me back into the land and renew the promise. Sometimes he'll make it harder for me until I learn to trust. But both are acts of God's love. God is not angry with you. That's, that there's no condemnation. God has done what the law could not do by sending Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. He has condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous decree of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You want to be more righteous? You want to be more obedient? I don't know a Christian who doesn't. But there's only one way, and that's learning to trust God. And then he'll explain it in verses 5 to 9. In our outline here, 5 to 11. Um, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Well, that should be obvious. Sinful people are all interested in sin. But Paul is not writing to people who are interested in sin. He's writing to people who are interested in avoiding sin. Yes or no? Then what is he talking about? Everybody knows that sinful people set their minds on sin. Glenn? Um, how about if we just take the word flesh and call it muscle? <laughs> those who live according to their muscle 
set their minds on the things of the muscle. What they can do themselves. Yeah. Those people that are trying to do it are going to set their minds on what they can do. Uh, my favorite professor said, he, he, he said, I've struggled with a lot of the theological language over the years. He said, faith is a word most people don't understand, either in the church or out of the church. And so he said, I've, I've come up with synonyms over the years, but every time I come up with a synonym, it makes the matter worse, so I find if I go back to the biblical term, I'm better off. The problem here is, when we talk about self-effort, uh, we, I don't think we even really know what that means. Uh, most of us have that as part of our theological basic vocabulary because we've been taught it all our lives. But f- frankly, folks, Epaphroditus, do you know this name? Where, where, is he, where does he show up? Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Um, he labored so much on behalf of the Philippian church that he was... The, the, the word in Greek, paraplesion, is next door neighbor. He was next door neighbor to death. I'd say there's some self-effort going on there. Not in the sense that we usually mean, but how do you tell when somebody's worn out from trusting Christ and somebody's worn out from working uh, with their own strength? Pardon? Joy is part of it. Unless the worn out from working with your own strength has accomplished what you think you wanted to accomplish. And then there's still joy in it as of, of a sort. The, the issue for me is that, that the two terms, self-effort and faith, are not really um, um, opposites. Because there can be a lot of self-effort in, in faith. So I'd, I'd like to just keep it with flesh. Longing, longing to gain your blessings, longing to gain the, the favor of God by what you do. Instead of longing to get the favor of God by simply trusting Jesus and trusting anything God says. A person who obeys the law out of trying to earn God's favor and a person who obeys the same law because of faith have both obeyed but only one is pleasing to God. Are you with me here? What is not pleasing to God, and turn to Philippians again. I um, guess we, we, we need to camp out over here for a little bit longer. Philippians chapter 3. Um, verse 4. Even though I have great confidence, even in the flesh... If anyone thinks, so this is Romans, uh, for Philippians uh, 3, 4. If anyone thinks that, uh, if anyone else thinks that he has something to boast in the flesh, I all the more circumcised on the eighth day of the, tri- of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As far as the law is concerned, a, a Pharisee. As far as zeal, persecuting the church. As far as righteousness, which is by the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have, I have come to the settled accounting, for Christ's sake, that they are lost. He moved all the credit column over into the debit column. Um, indeed, 
I consider all things to be lost for the sake of the excellence of, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I count them as refuse so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law. And that's the great problem. I want my own. I don't want, as Luther called it, an alien righteousness. Uh, Fred? Even in light of what you have now taught us today, if you go back to the first two terms of Rome, of Rome that the law of the spirit, spirit of life, life and the law of sin and yeah. of death, if you contrast those two terms in light of what you Okay, the law of sin and death is, is all that Paul did before he was in Christ, all that he did as a Pharisee. The death that he's talking about in Romans 8 goes beyond that in the sense that uh, when you're living by the law, you're living in death. You can't practice righteousness because indwelling sin is going to produce sins even against your own will. And that's the great point of Romans 7. The issue of Romans 7 is you have hope. You are not hopeless unless you're trying to gain your righteousness by your works. The only hopelessness is you can't. And if you're honest with yourself, you will know it's true. Because every time, is it not? Do you not have an experience like this? You, you really work on some area of obedience and you find yourself going farther and farther back spiritually. Do you have an experience like that? Well, what's happening is you're trying to earn your own righteousness. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law of grace and the law of faith. It's the law of life. So back to Romans 8. Verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But I say again, flesh here is not my sinfulness. It's my longing for law righteousness, as will become, I think, fairly clear. Folks, think about it. We've, we've, ta we've talked about legalism in the past. Legalism is a situation in which you have, um, you have redefined the rules so you can keep them. And especially you have redefined the rules and you get others to follow your definitions. That gives you power over other people. It's amazing. You want, so, so church leaders are desperately afraid of preaching grace because it will set people free to sin. Yeah, because the church leaders are better than the Holy Spirit in helping people to righteousness. <laughs> makes no sense. But also, legalism focuses on externals. You can, you can only walk 2,000 paces from your home, according to rabbinic teaching, on the Sabbath day. Unless, the day before, you go out 2,000 paces and you put down enough food for meals for the, for the next day. That extends the boundary of your home so you can go another 2,000 paces. And if you've got to go 6,000 paces, you go out another 2,000, and you, you have extended your home by 6,000 paces. Are you with me here? But that's externals. Folks, how many times a week do you have to go to church to be right in God's eyes? Well, it depends on the church. <laughs> We've, we've talked about this. Uh, if you have those who love 
um, love the pastor, come on Sunday morning. The people who love the church, come on Sunday night. Those who love the Lord, come on Wednesday night. (laughs) So what does it take to be spiritual? Three times a week, yes? But any lost person who wants power in the church can come three times a week. So the moment you make things measurable, concrete, they can be counterfeited. But you can't counterfeit the righteousness of Christ, the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ. So the people who set their minds on the flesh are not people who are trying to be wicked. They're people who are trying to be good by keeping certain standards. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul is later going to say in in chapter um, 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Incarnate righteousness walked the paths of Galilee, and they crucified him as a lawbreaker. Yes or no? Incarnate peace walked the streets of Jerusalem and they crucified him as one who was stirring up the people, causing riots. Yes or no? Incarnate joy walked between Galilee and Judea. And they couldn't see it. Why not? Because they had their eyes set on the things of the flesh, not on the things of the spirit. Then what we're going to have to do, and in verses 5 through 8, he's going to do, we'll have to do this next week, Lord willing. But what we'll have to do is, is see these contrasts. Let me read through it quickly now. Verse 6, for the mind of the flesh is death. If you're setting your mind on things that will gain you righteousness, you are dead doesn't mean you lost your salvation. You can't lose your salvation by obeying God's commandments. (laughs) But you can't have the righteousness you long for by trying to obey God's commandments. Um, uh, The mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. But they're trying to obey God's law. Yeah, but God's... and, And God said... There is none righteous, and those who are according to the flesh say, Ah, but you haven't seen me, God. Hold your your horses, because i got something to show you here. You're making God a liar. Uh, For they're not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Well, of course sinfulness is not subject to the law of God. But that's not the point. It's people who are trying to keep the law for righteousness, who are not subject to the law of God and cannot be. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he says. Are you with me here? The issue here is not the contrast between sinfulness and righteousness. It's a contrast between two kinds of righteousness. Works righteousness and faith righteousness. And if I'm living by faith righteousness... If, if I am a justified person, born again, then I have faith righteousness. I may not know how to practice it consistently. I may be immature enough not to know how. But there's still no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It speaks so much to us, and yet so much of our background has clouded our minds. Set us free, Father, to see the freedom that is ours in Christ. Teach us not to fear freedom, but to embrace it, to love uh, walking into dangerous situations that you have led us into, knowing that underneath are the everlasting arms. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.